Well, a beautiful good morning to you all. Nice to be here in uh, Yosemite again. It's been quite some time since I was here. And uh, it's a great honor to be with you and also to be with Brother Jamie Hull. And uh, trust the Lord will encourage our hearts together. I'd like to uh, think a little bit with you this week about what it means to be New Testament Christians. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about a New Testament church and what that is. And, you know, you can't have new, a New Testament assembly without New Testament life. And I'd like to think this morning with you about a subject that uh, is very uh, clearly connected with what our brother Jamie's already been referring to. And I'd like to think about faith. And uh, if we read a verse in um, the book of Acts, <clears throat> chapter 3, we'll see quite clearly the link between these two ideas in Acts chapter 3, where we read concerning a man who was lame, sitting by the gate of the temple, and uh, Peter, in communicating with him, said in verse 6, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And when they're called to account for this, in verse 16, Peter says, and it seems a little awkward at first in the King James, but it says, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. He wants to explain to us that it, it isn't simply the faith that made this man strong. It's the name, but it's faith required in that name that made him strong. And one of the things we notice about the early chapters of Acts is how often there's reference made to the name. If you look back to chapter 2 and verse 38, they Peter spoke about being baptized in the name. And then a little further in chapter 4 and verse 7, And when they set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And in verse 12, Peter answers, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so they warn them and command them in verse 18 not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And so it continues through these chapters. We read about them in verse um, chapter 5 and verse 41. They departed from the presence of the council after they once again had been warned not to teach in this name, verse 28. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Let me, let me uh, read the sub-conclusions. The little subsections of the book of Acts are concluded with uh, an observation made by Luke regarding the advancement of the church in that day. And, the first section of Acts concludes in chapter 6, 
and verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now over in chapter 9, we have the second section of Acts concluding in verse 31. Acts 9.31 Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, were multiplied. And then in chapter 12, we have the third section concluded with these words. Verse 24 But the word of God grew and multiplied. And then in chapter 16, in verse 15, pardon me, yeah, pardon me, verse 5, 16 and 5. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. And then finally in chapter 19, in verse 20, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now when you read verses like this, do you recognize your own local assembly in that? Is, it, is that how you describe things going in your own local area? I confess as I travel the country and, and as I listen to Christians discussing the work of God in their own area, it seems to me in many places that we have uh, we've been convinced that... Um, Times have changed, and uh, maybe America's had its chance, and and maybe people are too hard for the gospel here, and maybe maybe this is the Laodicean age, and uh, time has passed for for seeing a mighty work of God in our day, or maybe somebody says, well. You know, everybody's basically heard the gospel, and um, they're not interested. I, I think these are urban legends. I don't think they're true. If it's the Laodicean age, they haven't heard about that in China, or India, or Africa, or South America. In these countries, many thousands of people are being saved every day. <clears throat> some some uh, apply Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10. Are you despising the day of small things? They say this is the day of small things. Well, if you go back and read Zechariah chapter 4, you'll see that the small things there were not small results but small resources 
It's describing the tribulation period when God with two witnesses will bring in such a harvest that John says you can't count them. He's on this tour of heaven and he, he sees this huge company that no one can number and an angel says to him, who are these, John? John says, I don't know, you tell me. And he said, these are the ones saved out of great tribulation. So when he says, despise not the day of small things, he's, he's not talking about small results. He's talking about small resources. God does a great work, whether with many or with few. It's no difference to God. America too hard, is it? Well, you think America's harder than um, Corinth or Athens or Rome? You think America's harder than China or Saudi Arabia? Or... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that one flies, does it? No. Is anyone too hard for God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, the man who wrote a lot of the New Testament was a man who who was pretty hard, wasn't he? He murdered Christians for a living. God saved him. Oh, Then there are people who say, well, everybody's already had their chance. Everyone's already heard in America, don't you know? Uh, people who say that haven't been out with the gospel lately. When we went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, with 250 believers to share the good news with that city, Child Evangelism Fellowship told us that 70 to 75% of the children under age 15 in Sioux Falls had never once heard the gospel. A friend of mine gathered some inner city kids around. There were about 30 of them. And she said, I asked them, what did they know about Jesus? And there were no hands went up. And finally, she, she gave a, a little appeal and said, doesn't anyone know anything about Jesus? And one little boy put his hand up and said, why did his mummy give him a swear word for a name? That was the accumulated knowledge gathered in that little room about Jesus. I'd come back from Japan and I was going to Scotland the next day or two days later and I decided it was no sense resetting my body clock twice and so I just got up at two in the morning which is wake up time in Scotland and went to work and on the way I stopped at an IHOP for breakfast and um, when the young lady came to serve me her name was Kelly uh, she said what are you doing up at this time of night and I said well I explained about being in Japan going to Scotland and she said are you a missionary? I said, wow, good guess. I mean, I would have thought she would have guessed for business, you know. I said, what do you know about God and the Bible? She said, absolutely nothing. But she said, I'd like to know. I said, really? Yeah, she said, my parents were so busy, you know, we never went to church. But she said, I feel the need for God in my life. So I said, have you ever heard what we call the gospel? She said, I have no idea what that is. Now, I want to tell you, this is Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is the New Jerusalem. We got, we got more churches in Grand Rapids than any other city in the world except Edinburgh, Scotland. 
This is the home of Zondervan and Kriegel and Baker and Erdman and Radio Bible Class and Children's Bible Hour and Calvin College and on and on the list goes. She sat down across from me for 30 minutes. I shared the gospel with her. Tears ran down her cheeks. She said, I've never heard this before. I said, do you have a Bible? She said, no, never had a Bible. I said, I'll bring you one tomorrow. She said, well, I'm not working tomorrow, but uh, I'll be in Thursday. I said, all right. And so Thursday morning at 2 a.m., I arrived at IHOP with the Bible. I'd gone and bought her a Bible with a leather cover because I met a lady one day. She looked like a duchess, a very dignified woman. And I asked her her story, and she said, well, I was a street orphan. orphan." She said, my father was a drunkard, and my mother went to bed to escape. And she said, if I had to feed myself, look after myself, I was just a dirty little urchin. And she said, I was walking down the street one day, and this beautiful lady stopped me and said, would you like to come to a place every week where you'll be loved? She hooked me. And she said, I started attending her Sunday school class. And the first week, she said, you don't have a Bible. No. Well, she said, Monday I'll take you out and get you a Bible. She decided to make a special event of it. And she said she took me out. And first, she took me to a restaurant. And and she said, I'd never been in a restaurant before. And then she went to the Bible bookstore. And she picked out a Bible with a leather cover. And she said, that was the turning point in my life. I thought she must think I'm going to stick around for a while if she bought a Bible with a leather cover. And so I bought Kelly a Bible with a leather cover. And I I took it to her, but believe it or not, at 2 a.m. she was busy with a truck driver. And so another waitress came over to me and she said, Mr. Nicholson, I said, how do you know my name? She said, well, Kelly took me out for lunch yesterday and told me everything you told her. And she said, I've got a question for you. How do you know when you should speak to somebody about God? Well, I began this long, convoluted explanation about the leading of the Spirit, etc., etc., and I saw her eyes glaze over, and I figured out I ought to just shut up, and so I did. And she said, well, I was wondering, because she said, "Um, you came in about a month ago with your son, and I served you, and you never talked to me about God. Now, here were two girls, raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, all their days, graduated from high school, had a job at IHOP. Neither of them had ever once heard the story of the Savior's love. We're raising a whole generation today in America that has never had a Bible in their hands, never been to Sunday school. They don't know anything about the Lord Jesus. Now, that has its benefits, of course. They don't have a lot of religious hang-ups. (laughs) It's a blank page. And we have a golden opportunity to share that glorious news with them. And so, uh, I hear lots of these, what some maybe not so graciously might call excuses. Things like, well, you know, I'm not an evangelist. You know, it's not my personality type. (laughs) Well, you know, when you turn to the book of Acts, you discover that The Scripture says they went everywhere preaching the Word. And the they was not the apostles, because we're specifically told in that same chapter that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and everyone else was scattered abroad. 
And they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. No, we're not all evangelists. But every one of us is called to be a witness. And we're going to think this week about the wide variety of ways in the New Testament that we can be a witness. But I think we have to, first of all, agree that this is the will of God for us to be witnesses for Him. I think what we need to do when we think about the New Testament church, we think about New Testament life and what characterized the church, is we need a true diagnosis of our problem. And then we need a biblical answer to it. You know, the New Testament is full of diagnostic tools. That's really what the epistles are. The Apostle Paul knew the spiritual state of every group of Christians with whom he had fellowshiped and labored and and so he would, he would diagnose their situation and then he would provide solutions. And that's what we call the epistles. That's really what they are, is diagnostic tools. And so hopefully over this next week we'll have an opportunity to, to take a look, first of all, inside and see maybe some things that need the stimulating ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. And then to look into the Word of God and see some of the glorious answers that are given to us in the Word of God to bring us more into alignment for with the divine purposes regarding our lives down here. You know, the early Christians were called believers. That's a bit of a clue, isn't it? They were believers. They really believed God. They really believed the Lord Jesus. And I think we really have to come back to that. What do I really believe? And if I believe it, does it show in my life? Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 11 for a minute, that little section just after the passage we looked at earlier this morning. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the subject of faith. One of the things that marked the early church was a vigorous, believing faith. An active faith. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, we read, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What makes all the difference in a person's life? What makes all the difference in a person's life? It comes down to one factor whether I believe God or not. It makes all the difference between life and death, between heaven and hell, between lack of growth and dramatic growth. It makes all the difference. The Lord Jesus told a parable one day about the, the house on the sand and the house on the rock. And we can sing it in Sunday school and we can apply it any way we like. But what He said was, His application was, that the difference between success and failure in a person's life come down to this one factor. If we know what God says, do we do it or not? Those who built their house on the sand, they knew the Word of God, but they didn't do it. They didn't act on it. And so, what makes the difference is taking God at His Word. The writer to the Hebrews goes on to say that without faith, 
it is impossible to please God. Now, Abraham is called the father of the faithful, the father of all who believe. And you remember how God took him for a walk, showed him the sand of the seashore and said, that's what your earthly family is going to be like, Abraham. And then he showed him the stars of heaven. And he didn't say, you see how bright they are? Your spiritual children are going to be bright. What he said was, do you see how many there are? And Abraham believed God. I'm amazed at how many Christians I meet who think that only a few people are going to be saved. And you know why they believe that? Well, because they walk by sight. They say, well, most of my friends are lost. And so they extrapolate that across thousands of years of history and they say, look at that. I mean, it's only a few are going to be saved. And they think they have some warrant in Scripture for that. But I, I, I wonder if that's true. Obviously, we read a passage like there's a, a broad gate and a narrow gate and there are just a few that go in through the narrow gate. But we're going to have to understand that in the context, aren't we? Because there are other Scriptures that tell us that when that first generation of Jews essentially rejected the Messiah, he said, go then into all the highways and byways and compel them to come in, for my house must be filled. And when the man asked, are there few to be saved, Jesus didn't say yes. What he said was, mister, you make business, you get, make sure you get in. But I tell you, I see them coming from the north and the south and the east and the west and sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. In fact, Paul, writing to the Galatians, tells us that the children of the free woman will be more than the children of the bondwoman. Now, half the world is swept away before their fifth birthday. Where do they go? Jesus said, Their angels behold my Father's face in heaven. And I do know this, that um, in the Old Testament we have a specific story about a man. He's be the least likely man in the neighborhood for God to arrange a special gospel meeting and bring the best preacher in the country to come and preach it. His name was Belshazzar. But God has arranged a special evening for Belshazzar. This was your life. And brings it home to the man. This is your last chance, man. You're going to die tonight. Why do you do that? Well, you know, when Jonah came and preached at Nineveh and said, Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, there was no good news in the message at all, was there? But latent in the message, the men of Nineveh heard good news. They said, Why would God give us time? Why doesn't He just zap us? He's giving us time so we'll repent. And they did repent. Well, it may be an exception to the rule, the story of Belshazzar, but I'll tell you, when Jesus tells a parable in the New Testament, it's not just an exception, it's the rule, isn't it? And he tells the story of a rich man who has no time for God. God is not in all his thoughts. All he cares about is making money and, and building bigger warehouses to hold all the extra stuff. And God comes to him the night of his death and warns him, this is it, this is your last chance. I really think that God draws near to every soul. It would be just like God to do it, wouldn't it? To give every creature one 
last chance. It may be when they're in a coma. You know, the Spirit of God doesn't need the equipment we do. His Spirit goes directly to their spirit. And it may be many a soul that we thought was lost. I tell you this, if there's any way for God to righteously save a person, He'll do it. And I think He's done a lot better job than we give Him credit for. Because after all, it's the Spirit who's gone into the world to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And John says, this is the light that lightens every man that comes into the world. Not everybody has the same amount of light. I know that. But everybody has enough light to tell the difference between light and darkness. So, when we think about the early church, one of the chief characteristics of the church was they had faith in God. They took His Word at face value. Brother Jamie gave us a definition, something like this. A decision to choose God's read on a situation. When our feelings, the facts at hand, the information we have seems to point in entirely the opposite direction. We take God. Let God be true if it means that everybody else has to be a liar. If it's God versus everybody else, we take God's word for it. That's what faith is. Now, when the Lord Jesus spoke to eleven men and said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, was he thinking, what can eleven men reasonably do in the next thirty years? Was he looking at the stats? Was he, was he looking at the information that we would have available. You see, the problem is that when we do that, we fail to take into account certain numbers. We look at the numbers of people. Look at this, six and a half billion people in the world. You're being thoroughly unreasonable. And God is saying, well, <laughs> you're not calculating right. If you're only calculating the number of serious Christians over against the number of lost, you haven't factored me in yet, have you? It's God that makes the difference. The Spirit of God at work, the Word of God, the power of prayer. We need to factor these things in. And when the disciples did, they thought it was quite reasonable. They thought that Jesus actually meant. When He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, they thought that what He actually meant was, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so that's what they did. And we turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we discover the Apostle Paul says in his day that the gospel had been preached to every creature, that they actually went and did it. And they found the ruins of first century churches in Mongolia and China and India, North Africa, Ireland, Spain. They did it. I mean, we read the book of Acts and we think this is what the early church did. Well, no, that's just Paul and a few friends. They covered a small area in about five years that was about uh, 600 miles by 300 miles. And they thoroughly covered that region with the gospel. We read about 105 moves that Paul made. Now, once the Spirit forbade him, and once he had a, a divine revelation, a vision, and three times else... We read about the Spirit of God moving in certain ways. But 100 times, we just read they moved to the next town. 
They just kept at it. If you have a, a ship and it catches fire, the captain doesn't say to the crew, okay, just run around screaming and eventually everybody will get the idea. He says, look, to this man, you take this deck and you knock on every door and you make sure that everybody in this area gets the message. And somebody else goes somewhere else until eventually they've knocked on every door and everybody gets the message, right? And, and that's how the early believers did it. That's how the Lord Jesus did it. It says He preached in all their towns and villages. Now, we've just lost this in the last 60 years. I was riding with my grandfather through the countryside in the Niagara Peninsula. It's an area about maybe uh, 70 miles, 80 miles by 70 miles, something like that, from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie, from the Niagara River over to the city of Hamilton. And as we're riding, we're on our way to a conference. And I, my grandfather mentioned, we had some really good gospel meetings. I preached for six weeks in that, in that schoolhouse there. Drove on a little further and he began to tell me the story about a man who got saved right in front of that clock tower in that little town. We were having meetings. We'd have meetings in the open air there and, and a man got saved there. He was a drunk Indian. He became an elder in one of our assemblies. As we drove through the countryside, every little town had its stories. And finally I said, Grandpa, do you think you preach the gospel in every town, village in, in the Niagara Peninsula? He said, I may have. We got out the, pay, the new the, um, map afterwards and we started going through. And my grandfather, now he, was a, he ran a grocery store. He raised a family. He was an elder in the assembly. But he didn't do much else. You wouldn't want to ask to see his golf swing. He preached the gospel, not just once, but they preached the gospel in every village and town in the whole Niagara Peninsula. They kept at it. You know, if we're going to get into big-time farming, farming is not a hobby. You don't just drive along one day and throw a few seeds out of the window of your pickup truck. It's expensive. It takes a lot of time. And it seems to me that one of the things, if anything is going to come out of this conference, and I want to tell you something, the only reason I'm here this week, they had to fight to get me here, and I, I tried to get out of it too. And I almost didn't make it. And I, I really felt the enemy at every step of the way. I mean, my flights were canceled. The, 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 the government said I couldn't fly in. I had to take a bus ride through the night to get to Seattle. All sorts of things have happened to keep me from coming today. And the only reason I'm here is because I think that California is crucial to the work of God. And that the people who are gathered here are an army. If we would rise up as one man and commit ourselves to the work of God, I believe God could reach every soul in California in our generation. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here. And you may think that's a bit overwhelming, but I want to tell you, these people are lost and they're going to hell. And, and you may think that a lot of other evangelical churches are actually evangelistic, but there's a huge gap today between evangelical and evangelistic. Our young men traveled a year ago on Good News on the Move, 26 states for 10 months. They were in fairs and markets and parades and knocked on doors and college campuses and at the end of that ten months, I asked them, how many other people did you see out doing gospel work? They said, you mean besides the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons? There were a couple of holiness preachers 
on college campuses that would get up and scream at the young people and tell them they were whores and sluts and, and that they themselves were sinlessly perfect, but that's hardly what you'd call the gospel. They said, we found one man at the Kentucky Derby handing out gospel tracts. That was it. Now, I, don't, I don't doubt that some people are out there with the gospel. But I dare say there's very, very little gospel work going on. I can't think of one gospel radio broadcast, national gospel radio broadcast left. Maybe you know one, but I don't. Most of these programs that used to be gospel programs are now on Christian radio stations suited to Christians. Well, that's fine. That's, that's good. But as far as the gospel, getting out with the gospel, it's just not happening. And so now, when we go out with the gospel, people think that we're invading, you see. We have relinquished the territory. We've retreated. And so now, when we go back to the gospel, it's like, you can't do this here. So I think we can. Thankfully, we still can. But it's going to be tough to regain that territory now. Not impossible at all. But it's not going to be easy. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, this man Abraham, we read that that he made certain choices. And one of those choices was, he was willing to go somewhere. And he had no idea where it was leading. You know, there, there are a lot of the saints today who are quite excited about doing something as long as all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, all the details, we know how we're going to pay for this, we know how it's going to work, then we'll do it. That wasn't Abraham's case. Gospel work is a high-risk operation. Fishing is high-risk. Farming is high-risk. Fighting is high-risk. Finance is high-risk. All of the pictures Jesus used of gospel work, they're all high-risk operations. Somebody heard that we'd, we'd spent $200,000 to get cross-Canada cruisers up and running. And I thought, well, that's kind of a bargain. It cost $2 million to start a McDonald's franchise to sell greasy food. I think it's a bargain, isn't it? If you can reach thousands upon thousands of people with the gospel... But we have to get that into our budgets again. Our assembly giving, we, we give to the foreign field. We, we give to people who come and visit us and minister to us. We give money for our buildings. But do we have anything in our budget for, for investing in the gospel here in North America? If I were to ask the elders, do you know the pioneer workers that are out plugging away in the gospel here in North America? We don't even think of North America as a mission field. But it is. It's a real field. And increasingly... The world is coming to us. And we're able to reach people here that we could never reach in their own countries. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I had a room full of young, bright engineering students. Not surprisingly, uh, petroleum engineering. <laughs> From Iran and Saudi Arabia... The country, I'd never be able to go and preach the gospel to them. And they sat there for two and a half hours and fired questions at me as fast as they could and listened to the gospel. Tremendous opportunities that we could not probably have anywhere else in the world. 
Abraham chose to go somewhere he'd never been before. We like things familiar. We like, we like to do things the way we've always done them. But you know, the way sometimes we do gospel work today, it's, it's the way we like it. I remember being at a hotel in, in Ireland and it was full of Roman Catholics, probably 200 Roman Catholics there. And, um, we thought, well, this is kind of, uh, we were edging into a new area here. We picked the two best known gospel hymns, two best known hymns, Amazing Grace and How Great Thou Art. We figured everybody pretty much knew that. And so, uh, this brother got up and he gave out these two hymns and as soon as he did, a whole bunch of people got up to leave. And somebody ran after them and said, hey, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they said, well, this is obviously a Protestant church service. Well, you know, when we looked into the world, word, we, we were amazed to discover that, that Jesus didn't give out a hymn before he spoke by the Sea of Galilee. And, and Paul didn't give out two hymns and a prayer and announcements and a hymn at Mars Hill either. Why, they just sort of launched into the message, didn't they? And so maybe we could actually have some sort of a time with, with non-believers and maybe not sing hymns. We like to sing hymns. But maybe, maybe it might be just as well not to do that when we have our talk with people. And we also discovered that a lot of our language is, you know, do you speak brethren? It's a, it's kind of a, its own, um, you know, dialect. And a lot of the words we use, they're good Bible words, but other people don't get it. They don't understand what we're talking. It's a foreign language to them. And so when we use words like repent, either don't use the word, use the idea, describe what the Bible means by that, or, or define your terms, because today people just don't get it. A friend of mine was having some uh, gospel outreach in an area. It was a very poor area. Most of the people were unemployed, which meant he could have gospel meetings any time of the day. And that what they were doing was having a kids' club in the morning, and then they would invite the parents to an evening event. And and so this man came to pick up his daughter, and and so my friend invited him to the the evening, the, the adult session. And he said, "Well, no, no, I don't think I'll come." He said, "I don't believe in the Bible." And my friend said, well, this is ideal because actually we don't want the people who believe the Bible. This is specifically designed for people who don't believe the Bible. And so the man thought, well, if that was the case, maybe he'd come. So he showed up. Well, the preacher was speaking that night on uh, original sin, on Adam in the garden and how sin all began. And the man became quite belligerent, started shouting, and finally got up and stormed out of the meeting. So the preacher's son ran after him. And in a few minutes, the man came back in and sat down. He was quite civil. He listened to the rest of the message. And so afterwards, uh, my friend said to his son, how did you handle that? And he said, well, when I went to talk to him, he told me his name was Adam. And he said, he said that man invited me here to blame the whole thing on me, he said. <clears throat> and he said, I don't even have a garden. You can't presume on people's Bible knowledge. Now, if you look at John chapter 3 and you see the Lord Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he presumes on his understanding of the Bible. You're a teacher, man. You know this story. He learned it at his mother's knee about the serpent on the pole. But in chapter 4, when he speaks to the woman at the well, he doesn't even quote a Bible verse. Is that shocking? But he uses Bible ideas. He could have quoted Bible verses. He could have quoted, How everyone that thirsteth come to the waters. He could have told the story of the smitten rock. But he used something the woman understood. In other words, he started where she was. 
Not where he was. We need to get to where people are. And then we have to understand the principle the Lord Jesus used when it says that he wouldn't quench the smoking flax. Now, smoke is an irritant. The the flax was supposed to have light that would help you. And instead, it actually blinds you. And that's what man's religion is. It blinds people. It doesn't bring people to God. It blinds them. It's the devil's trick. But the idea there is that if there's smoke, there must be a spark. And so to fan that spark into flame, don't don't put it out. Fan it into flame. A week ago Monday, I was sitting having dinner with my family, which is a very precious thing to me. And the phone rang. It was a brother, Anil Yashudas. Anil, his name means servant of Jesus, Yashudas. Uh, his job was transferred to Kalamazoo, Michigan. There was no assembly there. And uh, so he would go back to his family state in Chicago, and he would spend three days temporarily. And he thought, what should I do with my evenings here in Kalamazoo? And he decided to go down to the Hindu temple. And so he would sit there on the floor as the Hindus came and went, and uh, he would pray for them. After a whole year of praying for these people, and some people said to him, well, doesn't it bother you going into the temple? I mean, these idols there, don't you know that there are demons behind those idols? And he said, yes, but you know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's his territory. I'm there to claim it back for him. And he said, the role of the Christian is to bind and to loose. And while I'm sitting there, I'm praying for the binding of the demonic forces and the loosing of these poor people who come in there to worship. And he says, uh, they know I'm not there to to act like a Hindu. I don't even look at the idols. I'm sitting sideways, and I'm praying for them as they come and go. Well, after a whole year, somebody came up and asked him his name. And when he told them, they said, that's not a Hindu name. He said, no. What are you doing here? Well, he said, I'm interested in spiritual things. A few more weeks went by, and and finally somebody said to him, uh, what do you believe? And he said, well, could you ask the Hindu council and see if I could have maybe five nights to tell what I believe? This is after a year and a half. And the, the Hindu council came back and said, well, five's a bit much. You think you kind of spread it out a bit, maybe? And he says, well, what about two, two nights before Christmas and two nights before Easter? He asked me to go down, and I sat there in amazement as all these Hindus came in and sat down, including the pundit who had just fed the idols. And he came and sat down on the ground, and my friend Anil went up, sat cross-legged at the front, and he began by saying, he thanked, he thanked the Hindu council for the privilege of doing this, and then he said, I am a devotee of the Lord Jesus Christ, and tonight I want to tell you about him. You know, people don't get saved by checking off theological ideas. Do you believe in this, 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 and this? People get saved when they hear the Lord Jesus speaking to them. And our role is to introduce them to the Lord Jesus and then get out of the way. And so, as he as he shared this glorious truth with these Hindus, I, I was just flabbergasted to see them. At the end of the hour, they get up and they rushed on him and they said, why did you stop? We've never heard this before. And he's had it now, I think, four years or five years He's been able to do this. In fact, he he grew bold by this, and he asked them if he could have a weekly Bible study in the Hindu temple, and he now has it there. If you ever get into Kalamazoo, you you can join his Bible study in the side room 
of the Hindu temple. Well, anyway, Anil called me up on Monday evening. And uh, he said, uh, I've been going up for a, a year now, uh, every Monday, to, uh, to a Hindu monastery in Ganges, Michigan. His name Ganges and this Hindu monastery is named after the first Hindu missionary to America. If you want to know how impervious Hinduism is to the gospel, remember that the Hindus have had the gospel for 2,000 years and it's made, made virtually no dent in Hinduism. Anyway, Anil thought that was a good place to, to shine for the Lord Jesus in that Hindu monastery. And so he, he went there uh, asked me to come. An old man who's responsible for the monastery asked if um, if we could uh, if if asked if if we could have a Bible study with him that day. So so anyway, we sit down with this old Hindu, and and I just want to mention something that I, I think is a faith builder in our own minds. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples before he went away, "You think these works I've done are pretty impressive, do you?" Greater works than these shall you do, because I go to my Father. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is a miracle-working God? We all say yes. Do you believe that God, who did miracles in the days of the Lord Jesus, can do miracles in our day? And you say, yes, with qualifications. Oh, says the Lord Jesus, you're going to do greater miracles. Greater miracles than that. See, I, I think this is one of the missing things in our gospel. You know what people like Richard Dawkins need? The, the great atheist who's published this book, The God Delusion, and college young people are feeding on that. It's been on the, world, on the New York Times bestseller list for 33 weeks. Millions of copies going into the hands of our young people. You can go on Richard Dawkins' website and you can see him sitting there with three other leading atheists. Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. They're, they call themselves the Four Horsemen. And they're discussing how to destroy the faith of all the young people in America. They're out to do it. Now, by contrast... John Lennox, who debated Richard Dawkins, he published a book called uh, God's Undertaker, Has, Has Science Buried God? I went into my local... Uh, uh, don't forget Anil, I'm coming back to him. Uh, I, I went into my, my local uh, Barnes & Noble and I asked for a copy of John Lennox's book. Okay, now Richard Dawkins' book is this pyramid right up to the ceiling at the front of the, of the, front of the store. And so he takes me way into the back and down a low shelf, and he pulls out the one copy. I said, now this book lays Richard Dawkins in lavender. It shuts him down. It answers every charge he raises. I said, is there a little bit of bias showing here? The young fellow says, yeah, probably. The point is, folks, we're not connecting. Well, here's Anil and this old Hindu. And Anil gives this beautiful presentation. I mean, I wish you could have been there. Talks about John chapter 1. And two disciples who are disciples of John, and they see Jesus, and they get up and they go after Jesus. 
He said, you know, if you're a disciple of some other way, it's okay to get up and go to Jesus and ask Him to... We want to learn from you. Well, anyway, the Hindu, maybe he thought I looked like a, a good prospect for Hinduism, so he began to explain to me about recycling, you know, reincarnation. And um, and, uh, and when he was finished, I, I looked at Anil and I said, what do you say? What, what do you think about that? And Anil was smiling on this poor man, just beaming the love of Christ on him. And he said, you know what I hear when I, when I listen to you talk about reincarnation? I, I hear that you want to live forever. You don't want it to end at death, do you? But you don't want to live in the same state you're in. You want to live in an improved state, don't you? And you know, that's what the Bible says. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we want to live forever, but not the way we are. But it's not automatic, you know. God always has been and always will be. And man had a beginning, and sadly, because of sin, he's going to have an end. But but if God would come down and, and interface with us and give us his eternal life, then we could live forever. And the old Hindu, Hindu turned to me and said, you know, just last week I prayed to God. And I asked Him to send me a teacher who would explain Christianity to me. And I think this is the answer, he says, pointing to Anil. Is that a miracle? <laughs> That's a miracle. Dear Christian, would you like miracles like that every day of your life? I think God wants us to have them. I read the book of Acts and I see this happening over and over again. Do you think there are people like the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius and the woman at the well in your town? I think they're there. We were just in Waterbury, Connecticut. And um, a brother, Roman Cressena, was out on the doors. He, he said to me earlier, I don't think this door-to-door thing's very good. I mean, it doesn't seem to work. I mean, we tried it before and I don't think it works. I said, well, you, we're praying, brother. We had, a, we had a prayer room. We had people praying nonstop when we were out on the doors. And we're saying we're looking to God to give us open doors. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the week. Anyway, he's knocking on doors. He comes to one, and um, this uh, young Catholic mother's there, three little kids. She comes out onto the porch, and he says to her, Are you interested in spiritual things? She said, I'm very interested in spiritual things. She said, I'm not happy with my religion. I don't think it has the answers. He sat down with her, opened up the Scriptures, began to read the Gospel to her, and she was just drinking it in. And she turned to him and said, You know, last week I had a dream, and in the dream God told me He was going to send a man to me to give me the answers. I think there are a lot of poor broken hearts out there. Now, you know the problem. A lot of times we go to people and, and we try to offer them the Gospel. They say, I'm not interested. You need to ask them, not interested in what? Because they think you're offering them another brand of failed religion. They've already tried that. And so we've got to explain to them in very... <laughs> we've, we've only got a minute to catch them. But we've got to say to them, did you ever hear that Jesus is alive and He's right here and He's listening for you? He wants to save you from your sin and give you certainty of, of hope? Did you ever hear that before? And just get past all the religion stuff right away. Because people are desperate for God. Well, our time's up. But I, I trust the Lord will encourage our hearts as we, as we think about the grand work that's been given to us. The huge privilege of seeing people come back to life right in front of our eyes. 
That's the privilege God has afforded us. And may the Lord encourage us as we, as we consider this great work to realize again, we have a great God. We can, we can cast all our trust on Him. Whatever we hope for, whatever we long for, whatever God's Word reveals He wants to do, we know our God can pull it off. And we want to get with God. We want to move with Him in His purposes. And we want to see God work in our day in such a way that no natural means can explain what's happening. That the only explanation to people like Richard Dawkins is not arguments, but miracles in the lives of people who put their faith in God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think of the early church, our hearts are thrilled when we think of of many priests believing. What a wonderful thing if many of the priests who are presently going through their rituals in Catholic churches and Orthodox churches and Episcopalian churches, if many of these priests believe, what a powerful thing that would be. We think of the persecutors, the antagonists to the Gospel, like like Paul. Oh God, we know it's possible that Richard Dawkins could get saved. And we pray that many of these antagonists to the Gospel those who have set themselves up, like Ted Turner, against the gospel, oh God, move in their hearts and bring them to, the, to their knees in the dust. And may they trust the Savior. We think of the multitudes of religionists that got saved, of, of atheists that got saved. We think of the salvation of, of Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris. Oh, what a thing to see university professors at Berkeley and Yale and, and Princeton getting saved like he did. And chief women in the city, society women, empty in their lives and marriages, crying out to God to save them. We pray, O oh God, in our day, that Thou wilt shake this country and that multitudes will seek for the rock that cannot be shaken and will trust the Savior. Fill our hearts with faith. We say with another, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We ask these things in the Savior's lovely name. Amen.